Welcome to the SBS Digital Learning Hour, brought to you by the Digital Learning and Assessment Department. We're coming to you today from a conference room in Central Office, bringing the latest news in Springfield Public Schools in regards to technology, along with inspiring interviews from teachers who are using technology in the classroom. I'm your host, Mike Thomas, the Bearded Tech Ed Guy. You can find me out on all the socials at Bearded Tech Ed, my personal website, beardedtechedguy.com, and of course, the digital learning page, on the MySPS intranet. I'm excited to continue this conversation on the distance learning playbook with you. Today, we're gonna be jumping into module five. If you haven't yet, you should go out and get the book. There's a lot of great resources for teaching in person in this book, even though it's entitled Distance Learning. A lot of the practices we're going to see and talk about are things that all teachers should be doing in the classroom. If you are a new teacher who's never taught before and listening to this podcast, well, awesome, great, I'm glad you're here. And number two, this book I think will be super helpful in helping you set up how to be successful as a classroom teacher. So let's go ahead and jump into module five of the distance learning playbook, teacher clarity at a distance. But of course we're talking on how this can apply, not just at a distance, but in person. The authors discuss the importance of teacher clarity in distance learning. That's the whole point of the chapter. But I think clarity for teachers is also important in the classroom itself. In the book, they provide several strategies for teachers to use to ensure that their students are clear about what they are supposed to learn and how they are supposed to learn it. You know, what expectations you're setting up for them. Teacher clarity is the ability to communicate effectively with students so that they understand what is expected of them and how they're supposed to achieve it. Throughout the section, and I feel like so far, out of all the chapters we've discussed, this one has to be the longest or the second longest because there's a lot here in this chapter that we're going to talk about and we're going to be able to apply. But I'm ta- looking at my first note that I took here is my keys to clarity, and I'm going to kind of summarize instead of read straight through what it says. To have clarity in the classroom, you need to be organized. You need to explain clearly, give examples and guide practice, assess the student's learning, and add relevance as much as possible. I know for most of us, these kind of sound like basic things that you're already doing in your classroom. And quite frankly, you're right. The book focuses on the distance learning aspect of this, but I think the principles still apply. One of the hurdles that I saw and the book reiterates is that if you don't plan well, your students will not get the feedback and support that they need, and they might also struggle in the classroom. In a distance setting, this could be incredibly difficult because you're not right there with them. That's the beauty about being in person when you're thinking about clarity here, is that you have the ability to address the students in the moment in person. It's much easier in a traditional setting to give impromptu help that could easily be missed while working remotely. For the students and the teachers, it is even more important, distance learning-wise, that you are being clear. I like how after the book kind of lays out what clarity is and some of the key pillars to it, to help give clarity in the classroom, they prompt you with starting with the standards, which is what all classrooms should be based about, is what are the standards that you're trying to teach your students? Some great questions to think about is, what am I learning today? Why am I learning it? 
And how will I know that I have learned it? Those are three questions that your students should be able to answer with your class. And so I just remember all the time in my classroom, I'd always have, we had these old chalkboards and we didn't have chalk, but I had to buy the paper that you put up there that turns them into a whiteboard. Sort of effective. If you use the wrong marker on it, the wrong expo marker on it, it doesn't get cleaned off very well. And so I learned that for my standards, I would have them on these cards that I would write out, like those sentence strips. And I would post those sentence strips up on that board so that my students every day knew what the standards were that we were going to be going through. And then throughout the lesson, they would be able to see why they were learning it and how they know that they have learned it. In the book, they give a really great example of a standard which read, interpret information presented visually, orally, or quantitatively, for example, in charts, graphs, diagrams, timeline, animation, or interactive elements on web pages, and explain how the information contributes to an understanding of the text in which it appears. Now, when they broke that down into what the students needed to do. It was almost an entire page, a little more than an entire page of things that were needed to be covered by just that standard. But what they noted was even though it was a language art standard, there are ways, especially with the charts, graphs, diagrams, timelines, animations, interactive web pages, to pull in other types of learning. So it's not just I'm reading a book, which is a lot of times what students think of when they think of reading class, even though that's not it. Like being able to be literate and being able to read charts and graphs and graphics, that's not just a language art thing. You gotta be able to do that in all subjects. Another one of the examples that they give that I like is the sixth grade team was focused on the following mathematics standards. Solve unit rate problems, including those involving unit pricing and constant speed. So the concepts for this type of math problem is unit rate problems, unit pricing, constant speed, and there's only one skill to that, and that was to solve. As opposed to the one before that interpret blah blah blah, the skills that the students needed to learn was to interpret, explain, and contribute to an understanding. A world history standard might say, explain how the ideology of the French Revolution led France to develop the constitutional monarchy to democratic despotism to the Napoleonic Empire. Whew, that was a mouthful. So the concepts in that one standard is ideology, French Revolution, constitutional monarchy, democratic despotism. Napoleonic Empire, I know I'm butchering a few of these words, and there's only one skill with it, and that is to explain. So a lot of times, and I'm hoping that maybe you saw this too, was that while the concept might seem big and hard, the skill can be more elusive. What does it mean, for example, to explain in the context of that history standard? Can you accomplish that orally, or does it need to be written? What makes a good explanation? And those are the questions as teachers that we are constantly plagued with when we're thinking about our lesson planning, when it comes to the clarity of great, explain how. That's really what it comes down to when we get to a lot of these different types of standards is, I understand what I need to do, but how do I show what I've learned? Would it be okay for, in particular, that history standard for the students to 
apply their knowledge and use a flip to answer it? Absolutely, because you've given no other guidance there. It doesn't say it needs to be written. It doesn't need to say it's spoken. They could make a stop-motion animation to describe their learning. You need, as teachers, to be clear in what you're expecting your students to do. And when the standard only says explain, but doesn't tell you how to explain or what they're looking for, then that gives you some creativity in allowing your students to be creative, to help them understand and internalize that learning. If everything was explain, 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 and all they could do was write, you're mo most likely going to start losing your students if all they're doing is writing all the time for their answer. Sometimes it's okay for them to be able to speak it. And for some, that might even be a better way of learning. Now, I think the reason why this section of the book, this module, is one of the longer ones is because they actually break down a unit plan for you. And the unit plan is like three or four pages here. And it takes your standards, your whatever topics and your progression of learning, the number of weeks, the activities in class, the formative assessments, along with extending, review, reteaching, and however you're assessing, and then the tasks and resources on how you could do it. So what I like about this section, again, because it's more distance-oriented, there's a lot of use of digital tools. What's fantastic is you can still do and use those digital tools in your classroom. Students can be answering flips in the classroom, especially if you have or if they have headphones with a microphone that they can plug in. It drowns out a lot of the extra noise when they use those. And so I think it's important when it comes to this idea of clarity is to make sure that your unit plan and your lessons make sense. Another way that having clarity helps is it helps with distractions. Now with distant learning, distractions are much more prevalent because you're not in the same room as them. You, they could be sitting outside. They could be sitting in the living room with, around their family. They could have their Xbox on next to them while they are listening to you talk. They could be posting on social media. They could be playing with their pets. They could do anything else to avoid their work. And to help them not avoid their work, you need to be clear in your expectations and your directions to those students. Another point that I found interesting in this book here is that clear communication can help build trust between teachers and students. When students know what's expected of them, they're more likely to trust the teacher and to be motivated to learn. I, I feel like that was something that got reiterated from the previous module. If you've ever been a classroom teacher, you already knew this. And I think that's what's great about this book is for those of us who've been teaching, it's great reminders. For those of us who haven't been teaching, they're great things for us to know ahead of time that we can learn from. Like what you've heard so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. The next part of this book here talks about create learning intentions. As part of each lesson, students should know what they are expected to learn. Their learning intentions, which we sometimes call objectives, learning targets, or learning goals, I like to think of my I can statements or 
SWAT statements, students will be able to, and having clear guidance for that. A few examples that could be used are like, I am learning that an electric charge can be positive or negative. I am learning to solve problems involving electric currents, electrical charge, and time. These are statements that the students should be able to make with whatever you are learning because in that statement, it describes exactly what they are going to be learning. And again, by being exact, it allows you to be clear. So to help with this, I always think of some strategies, like again, starting with the standards. I use SWABAT a lot, students will be able to statements. I also switch to I can. I can't remember which way I ended up going. It all depended on what the principal wanted up on the board, but essentially they're the same type of statements which guides the students in what they're learning. Next is you want a logical order of that lesson. You want to create what is called a flow. You don't want things to seem disjointed. You want to use clear and concise language. You don't need to overcomplicate what you're looking for your students to do. I think that is hugely important. We have a tendency to over explain as teachers. It's I think it's in all of our natures. And so we don't need to necessarily do that. We need to allow the students to explore and learn. And then, of course, using visuals and other multimedia can help make the lesson more engaging and improve student understanding. And then identifying some success criteria. And to do that, one way to do that is check-ins with the students. And Microsoft Form is something that could be super helpful with this or some sort of poll at the end of the lesson that allows the students to kind of check in their learning. You could either, they could answer a question based on what they were doing. You could have them write feeling statements out. Like they can create their own little KWL even. A version of that, like I learned this, I still don't, I need help understanding this, I got this. Some type of statements like that, because you have the ability to mix it up so you're not using the same thing to get that feedback each time. Because some feedback is going to be formative for you to see what they've learned. Some of it is going to be able to help guide your future lessons on where you need to adjust and maybe you need to come back to something. The book itself leans heavily into I can statements. There's a whole couple of pages all about writing good I can statements. So like if the intention for learning is I am learning to solve problems involving electrical potential differences, your I can statements can be I can determine values for electric potential differences in complex situations. I can recall the formula for calculating electronic potential differences. I can calculate the electrical potential differences between two points. Those are all very specific I can statements that are things that the students will be able to do at the end of the lesson. I always like students will be able to because it gave them a little bit more ownership in my opinion, but I can's work great too. Like I said, I've used both and it all depended on what was needed. Now, the last thing that we're gonna talk about this idea of finding relevance. So when you're teaching your students whatever topic that they're learning, figuring out if there's any sort of personal association with it, something that you can connect them to, like objects or memories, if there's a usefulness to it, so that the students believe that it'll help them with a personal goal. And the example they give is like, child reads article about soccer because he wants to improve his passing, or student perseveres through a mathematics course because she believes that the knowledge will help her gain admission to a specific college, allowing her to study engineering. 
So again, it could be as simple as the soccer one where it's like, I want to become a better passer. I'm going to read a book about how to pass. Or it could be, I need to pass this math course because I want to get into this engineering school. What they point out is the most motivating type of relevancy is the personal identification. And it stems from a deep understanding of the task or text aligns with one's identity. When students get to learn about themselves, their problem solving and their ability to impact others, relevance is increased. For example, a student who wants to build shelters for stray cats is highly motivated to learn geometry. A student who sees herself as a poet seeks feedback and lessons about voice, ideas, and organization. There's a lot of motivation that can come with clarity, which I think is great because we want our students to be motivated to learn. And if being clear is what's going to make that difference, then we need to, as teachers, make sure that we are being clear. So tying this all back together with the distance learning, because a lot of what you just heard, I didn't really say distance that much because it's all things that we should be doing in the classroom to begin with. But technology can play a pivotal role in creating clarity and engagement in the student's learning. In the book, the authors recommend leveraging technology tools to enhance instructional practices. For example, in that unit plan that they laid out, I think I read Flip like seven or eight times. And so being able to use Flip or a tool like Flip can help with students and also gives you the ability to give immediate feedback. And then you can also, in that immediate feedback, if there's something that needs to be clarified, you have the ability to do it. Also using tools like discussion boards is another great way to get that clarity because the students can ask questions and other students might know the answer to it. We do this all the time in our classrooms. When a student poses a question and we want to see if anyone else is able to answer before you as a teacher. And so in the classroom, teachers are the guiding lights for the students' successes. Throughout this module, the authors emphasize the significance of creating clear and engaging learning experiences by fostering purpose, providing explicit instruction, scaffolding support, and facilitating assessment, teachers have the ability to empower their students to thrive in the digital realm. And when students thrive, teachers thrive. When teachers thrive, buildings thrive. And when buildings thrive, communities thrive. And we want our students to be able to thrive. As educators, we need to be able to adapt to the changing learning landscape out there. And when we prioritize clarity and implement some of these strategies that are outlined here in Module 5 and that we've talked about in this podcast, we give teachers the tools needing needed to foster that passion for learning within the classroom. And I'm going to leave us with that success criteria again, because I think it is so important. I can describe various aspects of teacher clarity. I can use the three clarity questions to plan distance learning experiences. I can use three clarity questions to plan learning experiences. So you don't need the distance in there. I can analyze standards to identify concepts versus skills. I can develop learning intentions that ensure students know what they are supposed to learn. I can develop success criteria that provide students ideas about what learning looks like. I can discuss the relevance of the learning expectations with students. Whether you're remote, whether you're hybrid, whether you're in person, all of these things connected to clarity 
will help create and foster a classroom of success. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the SBS Digital Learning Hour, I'd love for your support by sharing this podcast with others, posting about it on social media. Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Head over to iTunes or Spotify in particular, or wherever you happen to listen to us. Stitcher is, of course, on its way out if it's not already gone by the time you've listened to this episode. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me out on Instagram and Twitter at BeardedTechEd. My website, beardedtechedguide.com. That's also where you can leave feedback and comments to these episodes. You can also find me out on the intranet of my SBS under digital learning. I am Mike Thomas, the Bearded Tech Ed Guy, and this is the SBS Digital Learning Hour.